Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, uh, last week you noted that one of your favorite moments of the Jericho O'Quinn Oscar Vasquez fight on Showbox came in the corner before the final round when Vasquez said something in Spanish and Raul Marquez elected... Uh, not to translate it, saying, uh, uh-oh, you don't want to know what he said. Um, you asked our bilingual listeners to clue us in. I understand one of them did. Yeah, uh, listener Will Alston, a longtime internet friend of mine, uh, sent me a message. Uh, and before I read what he wrote, I'll issue a profanity warning. Uh, fast forward 30 seconds or so if you're, uh, if you're listening around impressionable children. <laughs> so Will said, quote, all Vasquez said in the corner was a la verga, which translates directly to to the dick. It's a Mexican <laughs> slang commonly used with several possible meanings, including a fuck ton, fuck this, or holy fuck. The Spanish language is funny that way, end quote. Uh, I'd say Raul's instincts to keep it to himself were probably correct. Would you agree, Karen? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So I I'm just surprised that uh, he wasn't saying, um, put some water on his balls. <laughs> yeah. The old time classic. Yes. 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 For years, I think we talked about this on the old HBO podcast. For years, Edmore Holland and I um, used to throw that line at Jerry Olaya at basically every crew meal. Every time he sat down with us, we'd be like, hey, Jerry, put some water on his balls. And we'd find it hilarious. And Jerry would, being a good sport, go along with it. It wasn't for, year, it wasn't for years until we realized that actually it wasn't a Jerry Olaya translation line. It was Ray Torres years before Jerry even started working for HBO. But he put up with it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's uh, that's that's the kind of guy uh, Jerry is, uh, I guess. But, you know, I, I may I propose that uh, that when we're feeling feisty, uh, when we have a particularly feisty podcast, we label the podcast Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney a la verga edition. What do you think of that? There you go. That works. Okay. Just between us or publicly? I mean, either way, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might want to run this by some higher ups. I'm just well, yeah. You know, our Seth Nyman uh, ends up putting up the actual post and writing the titles and all that stuff. There you go. So it'll be it'll be his it's call if he wants to put an a la verga edition on it. That's feel right. free, Seth. It's on him. Uh, all right, uh, moving on to the rest of the podcast. Uh, we will be previewing the 251st edition of Showbox later on, and uh, and we're not actually going to keep counting down <laughs> like ad infinitum, but it's vaguely amusing to me right now. Um, uh, we will also be looking ahead to a, a fairly tasty-looking card on DAZN, uh, which somewhat unusually is uh, this Thursday. Uh, we will be joined by Showtime boxing expert and two-time world titleist, Polly the Magic Man, Malinaji. But first to Paulie's own Brooklyn, New York, the Barclay Center specifically. On Saturday night on Showtime Championship Boxing, Danny Garcia made it back-to-back -back wins for the first time for him uh, since 2016, as he comprehensively outpointed Ivan Redcatch over 12 welterweight rounds. Yeah, uh, on last week's show, we both predicted that Danny Garcia would beat Ivan Redcatch handily, and he did, but we both picked him to win by knockout, and he didn't. Uh, Garcia was dominant, but he was taking the full 12 rounds, as you said there, and you said he comprehensively outpointed him. Indeed, he did. He won a unanimous decision by scores of 118-110 and 117-111 twice, which, not that those scores are close, but it didn't even feel as close I as agree. those scores to me. I agree. Yeah. Felt, felt even more one-sided. Not that I, you couldn't find two or three rounds to give Redcatch, just it didn't even feel like that competitive fight. The fight lacked 
drama, uh, aside from Redcatch biting Garcia on the shoulder, uh, although no, none of us even knew that that happened in the moment, so we didn't even get the in-the-moment drama from that. Uh, and it, it lacked excitement, and the crowd started booing in the middle rounds, and even though Garcia boxed well and won easily, the fight probably gave his critics more ammunition. But at the end of the day, Kieran... Does that really matter? Is the only thing that matters that he got some rounds and got a win? You know, he didn't punch himself out of a Pacquiao or Spence fight, did he? No, he didn't punch himself out of one of those. Or at least I suspect not. He might actually have given, um, you know, his chances of especially a Manny Pacquiao fight an extra boost. Mm. Um, you know, you remember when... Um, when Gennady Golovkin's performances began to dip ever so slightly, and every time Abel Sanchez would insist that it was all intentional, right? Because there was no way they get Canelo Alvarez in the ring if he didn't look a bit vulnerable. Um, and I'm not saying that that, that Danny and the team did that deliberately, um, but that I think it probably doesn't hurt if Pacquiao's team were watching that. Um, uh, in fact, I definitely don't think they were dialing it back. I mean, you just listen to Angel in the corner after they after Redcatch bit him. Right. Um, yeah, they, they definitely were right to get rid of him. But, um, you know, he might have cost himself some pay-per-view dollars, um, you know, as, as we talked about before. And as you alluded to just now, there is a sizable segment of boxing fandom that just yearns for an opportunity to dump on Garcia um, and, and maybe those guys would not have bought a Pacquiao or Spence Garcia pay-per-view anyway but if Danny had looked really spectacular on Saturday night they might have been they might have been tempted to sort of uh, you know go ahead and hold their noses and do it anyway but other than that does it matter I don't know I guess it kind of depends what his goal was if it was to get him some rounds against the South Pole no it doesn't matter at all um, and, in fact it was exactly what the do doctor ordered uh, he did seem a little bit unhappy with his performance he did did say that he wanted the knockout but he did also talk about how he was surprised a few weeks beforehand to find how heavy he was right. um which kind of surprised me like a few weeks out aren't you on the scale every day not just you know i'll step on the scale I'm, I'm fighting in like three weeks i should probably see what i weigh right um so that was a bit strange given you know the part of the pre-fight package was talking about how he's a a role model and never lets himself get out of shape but um but yeah, look, at the end of the day, it was a, the whole fight was a bit of a nothing burger, wasn't it? It doesn't really improve his stock. Maybe it diminishes it at all, but it, it, I don't think it really changes very much in terms of him getting that fight against Pacquiao or Spence. Yeah. Um, and of course, he was indeed all locked and loaded to fight Spence, uh, as we know. But uh, Spence's car accident caused the postponement. I actually hadn't realized until the, uh, the guys started talking about it uh, during the broadcast that that Saturday night was the day that had been set aside for that Spence Garcia fight. Right. Um, and of course, Spence, we still don't know uh, to what extent Spence is still having to recover from that car accident. And so for that reason, as, as poorly, I think, mentioned on the broadcast, Pacquiao does seem to be the likelier big name foe for Danny Garcia this summer, uh, given the uncertainty around Errol Spence. Um, and, and, you know, some time back, we looked at Pacquiao's prospects of remaining at the top of the welterweight division. And um, I, th I think this was in the aftermath, might have been in the aftermath of his victory over Adrian Bronner. And I, right. we figured that the only two top welterweights he really might have a chance of beating were Keith Thurman and, and, and Danny Garcia. Uh, Pacquiao's now beaten Thurman. Um, based on what you saw on Saturday, would you make Pacquiao the favorite over Garcia if they fought this summer? That's a good question. It's close. Um, I would say... First off, that we were right. Uh, now that that Pacquiao ha has beaten Thurman, and we assume they won't fight a second time, that leaves Garcia as the only top five-ish guy at welterweight that you'd figure Manny has a good chance against. It's one of those fights where 
Garcia is maybe a tad better right at this moment, but Pacquiao could easily outwork him. And you tend to favor Pacquiao to get the close rounds from the judges, both because of his work rate and because he's Manny freaking Pacquiao. To me, it's a true 50-50 fight like the Thurman fight was. I would bet on whichever guy the books are giving me plus money on. You know, if they don't open it as exactly a 50-50 fight where you can't get plus money on either of them, I'd just take whoever they say the underdog is. Um, Looking at this fight Garcia just had with Santana, other than failing to get the stoppage, just from a technical point of view, I thought he pretty much did everything you could want him to do. I thought his straight right hand was fantastic. His accuracy was impressive. He went to the body at times. He landed some good counter left hooks. He used his jab in spots. A red catch was right there in front of him. And that allowed Garcia to showcase all of his weapons. And he does have a lot of weapons. At age 31, he's exactly what he's always been. An excellent fighter on the borderline for top 10 pound for pound consideration. And that's precisely where Pacquiao is at age 41, amazingly. Uh, So, yeah, I think when all is said and done... It's the fight that makes the most sense for both guys, and both guys would go in there, understandably, believing that they can win. Mm, mm. Uh, In the co-main at Barclays Center on Saturday night, Jared Hurd was dominant against Francisco Santana in his first fight since his upset loss last year to Julian Williams. But uh, like Danny Garcia, he didn't get the knockout. Uh, I went into this card really not expecting three distant fights no. to post midnight finish uh, to a show with a reasonable 9 p.m. start time. But uh, that's what we got. Uh, the contract weight was 156 pounds and Hurd once again looked huge compared to his opponent. But he wasn't just the bigger man against Santana. He was the faster and altogether better man. And he seemed to know that and feel comfortable in the ring, uh, maybe a little too comfortable as he experimented, uh, tried out some new new defensive moves and some new boxing moves got away with some obvious mistakes, like throwing his uppercuts from too far away. He got criticized on Twitter for not making another fight of the year candidate. Uh, And the booing was building and building until he dropped Santana with an uppercut with six seconds left in the fight and ended on a high note. Uh, But it wasn't a knockout. Final scores were 97, 92 and 99, 90 twice. Did Hurd get what he wanted out of this or should he be disappointed in himself? By the way, another one, 97, 92. I struggle to find three rounds at Santana. Yeah. I'm, you know, another Same one there's a bit. Yeah. Um, so, look, it seems pretty clear that <clears throat> in hindsight, the, the, the Jarrett Hurd goal in this fight was to, as you sort of talked about, uh, try out some new things against an opponent who wasn't going to be able to punish him for it as he was trying to figure out what worked. Um, you know, like Paulie said in the commentary, in an ideal scenario, you do that in an off TV fight. But Hurd's at the point in his career where he doesn't do off TV fights. So, um Essentially, we got to see something of a training session, which is fine. I wish I'd known that in advance before we made our picks, but (laughs) there you go. Um, So in that respect, yeah, I think he got what he wanted. Uh, He tried to box and move more. Um, He did mix in some of his power when he wanted to, uh, as you noted, especially right at the end there. Um, Even if it also rarely felt that he was fully committed to to his power there, as if he really sort of didn't want to uh, curtail his night. we now know why Hurd turned down that J-Rock rematch and, and saying he was going in a different direction. He didn't just mean in terms of different direction in terms of opposition. He meant, you know, in somewhat in terms of boxing style, sort of reestablishing himself and, and, and you know, sort of re- reviewing and refining himself with a new trainer. Um, you know, not too many top-class boxers have, have, have managed to alter their style midway through their careers. Um, 
or through successful careers. I mean, Marco Antonio right. Barrera did, obviously. Yep. It's the first Vladimir, that jumps to mind, yep. Yeah, Vladimir Klitschko, to mm-hmm. some extent, obviously. Um, looks as if maybe Anthony Joshua's sort of thinking about it, you know, at least in terms of adding those wrinkles. I don't think that Hurd wants to completely change his style, but be more than just the bigger, stronger guy in there. Um, so we'll see. It doesn't always work. I, I'll be interested to see how it works out for Jarrett Hurd. Yeah, I'll throw Bernard Hopkins' name in that list, yeah. too. Just yeah, the very early much. B-Hop was kind of a brawler and a puncher, yeah. and then he uh, became a, a great boxer. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I love the old stand-and-slug Jared Hurd, uh, but there's certainly something to be said for not always going to war. Uh, yep. But that said, by letting this fight go 10 rounds, he probably took just as many punches as he would have if he'd gone to war and knocked Santana <laughs> right. out in the middle rounds. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be interesting. I mean, the other factor, of course, is sometimes, you know, if you've got a new trainer who's telling you, you know, you've got to like, break, I've got to break you down and build you back up again. Right. There's always the danger that psychologically it, mm. what lodges in the guy's head is, well, oh, he's got to break me down. What am I broken? You know, so <laughs> right. it's, 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 it's a tough one, but he looked like he was pretty comfortable with it. Anyway, uh, in the opener, 122 pounder Stephen Fulton improved his record to 18 and 0 with a unanimous decision win over Arnold Kagai, who drops to 16, one and one. So when we previewed this last week, we did wonder if it would prove to be a bit of a difficult star matchup for Kagai. Um, is that ultimately what happened? Was this a case of Fulton's sort of movement and speed and slickness being a bit too much for him? Or does that actually undersell all the good things Fulton did in that fight and perhaps actually undersell what Kai did in that fight because it was not no means one-sided right I was just gonna say as you were asking uh, about uh you know the the style matchup being difficult for Hagaya I was thinking of sort of turning the premise and the question on its head and say Hagai was a really difficult style matchup for Fulton right. too um these are just two very good prospects with different styles, but both are quite talented and both were hungry and wanted to win. And it, it wasn't a great fight and it wasn't a razor close fight, but it was a good fight and it was a competitive fight. And they were both a pain in the ass for the other guy to deal <laughs> with in different ways. And I think both guys' stocks went up a little, even though Hagai lost the zero on his record. Uh, as I tweeted, e- even as Fulton was winning most of the rounds, I personally gave him nine out of 12 my eyes were drawn to Hagai. He he was mm. forcing the action and rarely getting discouraged, even in the face of an opponent whose speed and slickness were making his life difficult. Uh, so I, I absolutely want to see Hagai again. And Fulton just kind of quietly did all the things he wanted to do and was a true pro in dealing with the headaches that Hagai was giving him. Uh, the Fulton jab was great. That and his footwork were, were the difference in this fight. This went the way boxer versus pressure fighter matchups tend to go as long as the boxer is smart and tough and can take it a bit and Fulton proved he can. So uh, he moves on to a possible title shot soon at 122 pounds. And I think I rank Fulton below Boots Ennis in terms of upside, Mm. but not by a giant margin. We have some really good fighters on the rise in Philly right now. Yeah. Uh, this week marks the debut of a new regular segment on Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. No longer Will you all be subject only to the two of us knuckleheads breaking down the weekend's action? Uh, After every Showtime Championship boxing card, uh, the podcast will also feature somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. Uh, Two-time world titleist and current Showtime boxing analyst, the one and only Pauly, the magic man, Malinaji. Pauly, thanks for agreeing to uh, drop by and bring some common sense to the podcast. 
My pleasure, guys. How are you? <laughs> good, good. We're good. Um, so in the main event on Saturday, uh, Danny Garcia scored a comfortable victory over Ivan Redcatch. Uh, comfortable, except when he got bitten in the eighth round. That was maybe a bit uncomfortable, yeah. but uh, otherwise, fairly straightforward win for Danny. Uh, and he picked Redcatch as, as an opponent because he wanted to face a southpaw before a possible clash with Spence or Pacquiao later in the year. Did you see anything on Saturday night against Redcatch that altered your opinion about how he might fare in either of those matchups against Spencer Pacquiao. To tell you the truth, he looked like he was, uh, you know, not in a rush, taking his time. And I think he was just uh, working on some things, really. You know, um, mm. I think uh, the benefit of, uh, of fighting Red Catch um, isn't so much just obviously to get ready for a Pacquiao response. It's also to kind of um, familiarize yourself with the Southpaw stance. You know, he hasn't fought that many and he has, uh, you know, he's... Uh, in his career, and so he's uh, you know going into a training camp and then training for a southpaw uh, and then fighting a southpaw and then going into another training camp and then fighting either Spencer Pacquiao. You'll have had back-to-back training camps, you know, so you'll have mm. gotten to work on something against southpaws, you know. Uh, so it really it looked like he took this fight sort of as part of a long training camp, you know, and where hopefully he'll get uh, Spencer Pacquiao. Because to me, it looked like he was seeming to work on some things, trying to you know work on some uh, some ways to find the angles, change the angles. Um, you know, counterpunching timing. Um, he's a very good fighter. Then, then Danny Garcia to me is is an unappreciated fighter because he's a guy who uh, has does many of the subtle things so well, and the subtle things are a lot of times lost on on the on the on the layman eyes, so to speak. Yeah, you know, it's funny when Eric and I previewed this fight last week, we were talking a bit about why he seems to be a bit underappreciated by a lot of fans. And and to get back to that point, you were talking about this on the broadcast, that he does a lot of things that people miss. And and you've been in the ring with him as well. So, I mean, what does he do well that, you know, that maybe you saw on Saturday night? What are, what are some of the things that he does that people miss? Uh, for one, his sense of positioning is excellent. His sense of positioning meaning if somebody throws a punch at you, your instinct is to react to it. I and mean, react to it being making a defensive move, even give ground, duck, whatever the reaction is, you're going to react to it. But the less you react to it by the smallest of margins, you have to react to it, obviously, because you can just take it in the face. But right. the, the shorter or smaller your reaction is to still get the job done, the more dangerous you render yourself because you're remaining, you're, the, 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 short, the smaller your reaction is, the more, the more position to punch back you're in, you know? Danny, if you watch when offense comes his way, He's very good at, at and adept at holding his positioning, not giving up a lot of ground, and really putting himself in a punching position. And there, therefore, while you're punching, he's able to punch with you, you know? Mm. It's, it's sort of lost because the difficulty of this is is not is, is lost on people because, you know, it, it's not every day that people just have think punches coming their way and swinging. At <laughs> but when you're a boxer and you do this every day of your life, you realize that the way he does it, there's different ways of being effective, but the way he does it, it takes a lot of guts because – you know, you're going to put yourself in a position where the slight, the slightest error gets you hit with a shot clean. Um, but at the same time, he's perfected it through so many years of practicing this with his father, Angel, that, you know, it makes him dangerous. He, he, the output starts to diminish if, you, if, you don't, if you're not creative enough anymore, you know. And, and you can see Red Cats, you know, he wanted to fight. He wanted to, to, to be effective. But at a certain point, he started realizing Danny, Danny's able to react to everything. And, and the main reason he's able to react to everything is not because he's your typical counterpuncher with that athletic style and that makes you miss that makes you pay he's he's the reason he's able to react to everything because his sense of positioning is always excellent and he, mm. and he knows that and he knows that when you throw punches at him it's not just about making you miss it's about making it the smallest of margins and really 
while he's made, while the punches are coming at him, he's already putting himself in a position to throw something hard back at you, you know? So mm-hmm. you've got to be careful at how much you commit to, to offense against Danny Garcia because he's going to catch you coming. You, you saw to Amir Khan. There's no, the knockout of Amir Khan was like that. The knockout of Burke Morales was like that. Also, uh, one of the knockdowns against Zab Judah was very much like that. Mm-hmm. So at least one of the knockdowns. Um, you know, you, you, you notice it in, 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 in little patterns. And I, and I noticed even when I was fighting him, you know, he's, he's a guy who you have to be careful and because as if you you feel like you see the opening, you feel like you see this guy who doesn't maneuver very well with his feet because he's flat footed. So you think like, okay, I'm gonna pick him apart, but that's, really, that's the bait he's giving you anyway. Because his reaction is his reaction, his sense of reaction is so good, and it's not just because of the reaction; it's, a, it's about the positioning. Because his reflexes are not your prototypical athletic counterpuncher. It's not that kind of counterpuncher. It's based completely on effective positioning, hand positioning, balance, legs. Everything and and that's come that comes from schooling. That comes you got to give Angel Garcia a lot of credit there because that 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 kind of thing comes from schooling and also the mentality of Danny Garcia because you can't learn it unless you're willing to really bite down in that way because that's a very hard way to to do things and hold your ground consistently that way because you're gonna you, you risk getting hit and we saw like for example in the Lucas Matisse fight where he took a clean shot like that because you know his sense of positioning he's trying to hold it and you make one error suddenly you know you're gonna get hit clean. Yeah, and I, I imagine uh, having a, a an excellent chin as Danny does, and having confidence in that chin is a is a key factor in being able to to pull off that style as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, having a great chin, having a great chin is important. Uh, having the mental fortitude to, uh, uh, you know, even if you take a good shot, to stay with what you're doing, you know, because you know you may take a great you may take a good shot, but it doesn't mean you want to take punches in the face every time, you know. So you may right. take a big shot, but now you've got a you've got a you may not have been hurt, but it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean it tickles. And now, you know, you've got to go back to doing what you're doing. You can't hesitate. You know, the instinct, right. the, the human mind will make you hesitate when you take a big shot like that. And the next time, maybe you won't be as maybe you won't be as committed to what you want to do. You know, so the right. fact that he's able to stay committed to it no matter what is also also shows his mental strength and mental fortitude. Right. All right. So in the co-featured bout uh, on Saturday, Jared Hurd won easily, if mostly undramatically, uh, against Francisco Santana and spent the fight clearly trying out a few new things as he looks to recover from the uh, J-Rock defeat. Is this what you want when you're coming back from your first loss, a, a relatively non-competitive outing like this? And, and, you know, like even though there were boos and he didn't get the knockout, is this kind of what you'd be looking for if you're Jared Hurd in your first fight back? Um, you know, it was a fight that I think does the job for him and his team. I really think I, whether it should be on TV, I don't know. I'll mm-hmm. be honest with you. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, we're all allowed those kind of fights. You know, where you come back, you kind of get get the kinks out, maybe work some things out. Um, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Whether it, everyone should be subjected to having to watch that, though, is is you know what I'm saying? Because I, I totally understand it from the boxing perspective, what he was doing and why the necessity of the fight was, was important, uh, that kind of opponent. Santana is kind of just programmed like a battery. You know, he just kind of, you just turn him on and he just fights. He's not really thinking. He's not really creative. He just wants to just get close and punch, you know, but even when he gets close and punches, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no really uh, creativity or, 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 or ability to vary the shots even from in close. He's just kind of moving one hand and moving the other hand, moving one hand and moving the other hand, you know, but he's got to get close to do it. So you basically had a sparring partner in front of you, essentially. Um, so whether we, everybody should be suspicious objective to having to watch a sparring session after you take a loss, I don't know. But again, like I said, from their personal perspective, I do see the need for that kind of fight, and I see the need for having to work on things. And as a matter of fact, 
yeah, he did some things good, some things not so good. I think at the end of the day, if he's going to change his style to that mainly, he's going to need a lot more than just a Santana fight because a lot of things that was doing last night were working on Santana, but they're not going to work on a world-class fighter, you know? Right. So, so he, still has to, he still has to perfect a lot of those things, or he has to find the balance to where he's going to do those things and, of course, show us some of the old Jared Hurd as well. You can't just completely abandon what you did before, but at the same time, you're also not going to learn something new and perfect it at a world-class level so fast either. So I think finding the balance is important, and I think that's what him and Coach Kate Caroma have to kind of get back to the gym, get back to the drawing board and figure that out. You know, that, that's up to them to kind of discuss that and, and see what they liked out of this fight and see what they didn't like out of this fight. And, uh, and again, I, I really don't believe that the old Jared Hurd's style should also be completely abandoned because right. that's what made him a world champion. And I don't know that he can ever become – I think that he can make improvements to this new style. I think he can. But I don't know that he can be good enough with his new style to become a world champion again, strictly using this new style. I really don't. You know, I don't think I didn't see a I didn't see anything that 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 would say, okay, this is this is world class stuff he's doing. You know, what the world class stuff he's doing is the old Jared Hurd. If you sprinkle in some of this new stuff, I think I think there's a place for it. I think if you completely abandon it and try to go with this whole new 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 situation, I don't know how far he can go. You know, but yeah. of course I understand the whole the whole thing about career preservation and whatnot. But career preservation also is also there's another thing to career preservation. You also have to win at the highest level. You know what I mean? So so otherwise your your career is still going down the tube. So again, it's up to them to figure that out. But um, I, I think there's a there's an answer. Uh, it's just they have to find the right balance. Mm. Mm. Al said um, during the broadcast before the bout that 154 pounds might be the best division in boxing right now. Do you agree with that? And and who do you see as being the top dog right now? Um, I think it's uh it's definitely something to consider. You know, I think it's uh it's it's, it's in the conversation. There's there's several weight classes that can be fun, but the light middleweight division is is certainly one of the ones that you know come to mind when it come, you think of exciting weight classes. I really don't know who's the, who's the top dog right now because they keep knocking each other off, you know. But I think <laughs> that's what makes a fun a weight class. I think that's what makes a weight class more fun, you know. Everybody always wants to find the guy who's the king and everything like that. But you know, sometimes you have so many good, good, good princes that you know they're kind of yeah. battling it out to try to be king and they, and they knock each other off. So, so I, I I think they're all excellent fighters, but we'll see, you know, if somebody can come at the top and be head and shoulders above the rest but mm. I, right now there's not one guy who stands out to me and say the best for the there's a lot of fighters i, I love to watch in his weight class and I, and, and and i look forward to certain mac mixes mixes and matchups uh, coming in right so let's move on to the the opening bout certainly the best fight uh, on the card as it turned out uh stefan fulton was nominally the boxer against uh, the fighter in arnold kagai uh but although he boxed well behind the jab he also showed he can bite down, uh, not in the red catch on shoulder sense, the other kind of biting down. Uh, he can bite down <laughs> and fight when he needs to. H- how impressed were you with Fulton, and, and how do you, how high do you think his ceiling is? To be honest, I was impressed with both guys because mm-hmm. uh, Fulton is the kind of speed that can frustrate you and kind of make you come undone really fast. And a guy kind of stuck with the plan and had some moments of effectiveness despite the frustration of, of he's dealing with a, with a guy with the talent, speed, and overall ring generalship of, of, of Fulton. Um, so the fact that he stuck with it and, and, and didn't come undone and kept forcing Fulton to stay focused himself was impressive to me. Then to flip that over, when you realize your guy's not going to come undone, now you start to wonder Fulton has not been in, in the deep water with, with this kind of fighter with, who's going to consistently stay, who's going to keep that consistency and not come undone. He's going to really make him pay for any mistakes he does. And sometimes with a young fighter in the second half of a fight, even if they're having success, you know, the, 
having to bite down and continue to do that in the second half of the fight when you have a guy who's not coming undone, it can, it can, it can, you can mentally break sometimes. So, therefore, I was looking for that in Fulton now, see if he was going to break, see if the guy was going to, what the guy was doing was eventually going to break him or if he kept it. Obviously, the guy looked, knew he needed to break him. Uh, the guy kept, didn't come undone, but he stayed consistent and he had his, his little moments. But Fulton never came undone. Fulton kept it going the whole way. And so that shows me a lot of maturity and poise in the young fighter. And so mm. for that reason, I really, uh, for me, the psychological aspect of fighting is more important than anything else. I mean, yeah, you got guys with speed, you got guys with power, you got guys that do a lot of great things, but the psychology is important. That's why it's very hard for me to respect a guy who has no character in the ring, a guy who comes undone much easier, you know, very easy. Right. It doesn't matter what they do. You always know in the back of your mind, if you fight down hard enough through all their talent, you're going to make them come undone. And really what I saw, that was why I was so impressed with both of these guys last night was because neither of them folded or bent. You know, they stuck with, the, with, with what got them there and they, and they, and they tried and they even made little adjustments. But none of, none of them mentally folded to the other one. They refused to. And I, and I, love, I love to see that. I love to see that maturing in young fighters because, really, that, that, that shows you that they're, they're ready for the world-class level. And Fulton certainly is on many, many levels, uh, um, psychologically, physically. He's, he's the goods. And, 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 and yesterday, that, that mental aspect really, for me, closed the show as far as saying, okay, we already knew he had the physical tools. Now we know he has the mental tools. So he's ready for me to deal with anybody in the world. Right. The guy, though, you know, is also a guy who could give a, a lot of world-class guys trouble. And uh, can have his own uh, can have his own version of success in that weight class. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious about uh, about one thing. Just when you're calling a uh, a boxer versus pressure fighter matchup like this, is it ever tough for you as a broadcaster not to side a little more with the boxer, see things a little more through the boxer's eyes, since you were always on that side of the equation yourself as a fighter? Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I don't really care about that. You know, I kind of okay. just uh, look for the effectiveness, you know, and I, I kind of just call the fight, you know, um, I think, I think that's a mistake a lot of broadcasters make is they kind of decide on their mind who they like before the fight. I don't like anybody. I like, <laughs> I like, I like, I, I just like boxing, you know, and, uh, and even if I may know a guy, uh, more than the other guy or whatnot, I, I, I love to let the fight unfold and, and break it down for you. You know, I think that's the that's the coolest thing in the world is when you actually know what you're talking about and you can break down something that's unexpected. It's not scripted, you know? Right. Um, a lot of broadcasters make the, make the mistake that they kind of have the, the fight scripted in their mind already and then they kind of just call the fight that way even if it doesn't play out that way, you know? Mm. And I think that's, that's that's unfair to the fans who are listening. So, so mm. for me, I mean, I'll just... I, I love to watch the action unfold and then kind of break it down for you because you, you just... It, this is the theater of the unexpected, the theater of the unscripted, and 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 therefore I, I think it should be called that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, f- finally, you know, to follow on from what you were saying about how you were impressed by both Fulton and Kagai, uh, you mentioned on the broadcast about how both men would go would improve from having fought each other, and and it made me wonder, like, we want to see more of this kind of matchup. You know, two young undefeated boxers going up against each other relatively early in their careers, and both coming out better as a result and can, and can we as fans help make that happen by not focusing so much on young fighters having an o in their record yeah yeah i think uh, what i meant when i said that they both could get better is because they both took each other to places that maybe other opponents can't take them and they mm-hmm. both came out of it i wouldn't say on on unfazed but they both came out of it very strong-minded and 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 and, and and you saw throughout the whole fight, both were had a winning mentality the whole way. You can kind of tell when a fighter's still in the fight, but his winning mentality has been beaten out of him. Mm. And I love the fact that both guys kept the winning mentality the entire time. You know, never folded, never wilted, you know? So I, they both took each other to that place, and they both passed to pass that test, you know? And I think they'll be, they'll be better for it going forward against uh, other, other opposition. As far as 
seeing other fighters fight each other and risking their O's, I'm sorry, but I blame the media for that. I, I, I'm sorry uh, because yeah. they're the ones that write guys off right away and they're the ones, uh, you know, turning guys off right away as soon as, as, soon as they're the ones getting beat. Uh, as soon as uh, a fighter doesn't have the undefeated record, you know, it's, uh, it, it becomes a problem where the super fight can't be made. For example, uh, everybody was like always expecting the Mayweather Pacquiao to be the super fight, be a great fight. To me, Mayweather Cotto was always the better fight. And when they yeah. actually fought, if you compare Mayweather Cotto to Mayweather Pacquiao, which one's the better fight? Mayweather sure. Cotto. Right. So, so reality, realistically, the media is more to blame than anybody else because as soon as one somebody takes an L, all of a sudden, you know, they kind of they're kind of off to the wayside and and, and they're they're looking at the next guy to make a super fight. Super fights can be made between two great styles, two great fighters, and sometimes if they get beat, they get beat. But I think when fighters knock each other off, it's also because they're fighting so many good fighters, you know? Because for a yeah. good fighter to have losses, that means he fought other good fighters. And 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 that, and that and that should be credited. But I don't know when this whole thing changed. Everybody makes like the good old days, but I really if I I really when I started the history of boxing, I I, I kind of pinpointed to the, the fight of Ali Frazier one, where, where it was two undefeated heavyweight champions. It made, it made this great spectacle, uh, this amazing, uh, uh, the media, amazing media frenzy, uh, crossovers, uh, crossover fans from all over the world. You know, that there was just an amazing spectacle. And I think ever since then, boxing has been trying to duplicate this kind of event. And it's just, mm. you'll never obviously duplicate that kind of event. But one of the, one of the particulars about that kind of event is that you had two undefeated guys. Because before that, if you really notice, before that, Boxers could have losses, and it was, uh, and, and it, they were still considered super fights, you know. Right. When they fought each other at a high level, but now, you know, since then, and it's only gotten worse and worse and worse because you know, new new generations that were born after that have only been subjected, have only been subjected <laughs> to this kind of thinking. They have never even been subjected to the form some of the former latter way of thinking, you know. So, so now you've got fans that have been completely brainwashed, media that have been completely brainwashed into thinking this way because their entire life this has been the mentality. So it's only gotten worse instead of better. But again, I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't really blame the fighters because they can only go with the system, within the system right. that they're fighting. The system is this, right. risk, lose a fight and risk your paychecks. So right. it's kind of hard to make that choice. Yeah. Um, hey, look, Polly, thanks as always for your insight. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to talk to you in a couple of weeks uh, after we have uh, the latest outing from Gary Russell Jr. But um, until then, thanks a lot for joining us this week. Look forward to it, guys. Take care. All right. Uh, this Friday, January 31st, Showtime's strong start to the year continues with the network's fourth fight card and second showbox offering uh, this month. It's a triple header from Shreveport, Louisiana. The main event features a very familiar face in the form of undefeated featherweight Ruben Villa, who is 17-0 with five KOs and is making his fourth consecutive appearance on Showbox. Uh, as his record suggests, there isn't much punching power there, but in his previous outing, he dropped opponent Enrique Vivas hard in the second round of what proved to be, at times, an entertaining and eventful contest, which included overlong rounds and broken ropes. <laughs> broken ropes being the theme of Showbox in 2019. <laughs> yes. um, uh, in the event, Villa uh, cruised to a unanimous decision win, setting him up for Friday's contest against Alex. Collado. He is 31 years old and he enters the ring, according to BoxRec, with a record of 26 and 2 and 23 KOs. But according to Fight Facts, his ledger is 25 and 2 with 22 KOs and one NSF, which I had to look up, uh, but means a non supervised fight as a May 2017 bout in Bolivia, which BoxRec counts as a TKO when did not have any commission representatives ringside. So there you go. The things you learn. <laughs> I know. Um, I know what NSFW means, but I did not know NSF. <laughs> right. Exactly. Glad to have learned that. Yes. NSFW really covers most of our podcast. 
<laughs> yes, uh, the a la verga could also be called the NSFW edition. Yes. There you go. Exactly. Anyway, all of this shenanigans aside, uh, Eric, I know you regard Villa highly as a prospect. Um, so remind us what you like about him and tell us what we can expect from Calado as he attempts to end Villa's unbeaten run. Yeah, I really do like Villa, but he has one of those styles where I totally get that someone's mileage may vary. It's a little like Pernell Whitaker, uh, and I'm not comparing him to Pernell. Please don't misquote me, Internet. Um, but it's like with Whitaker. Some people found him endlessly fun to watch. Some found it sort of boring to watch him outbox opponents with a priority on defense. There's some of that with Villa. He's not giving you spectacular action, but... I love the artistry. Uh, I believe I've compared him to Johnny Tapia before. Uh, he hasn't proven he's on even that level, but it's that sort of skill set. Other things I like about Villa, uh, the activity. He's never been off for more than about four and a half months his whole pro career, and he's always in the gym. The pedigree, as Gordon Hall mentioned a couple weeks ago, he beat mm-hmm. Shakur Stevenson, Devin Haney, Gary Antonio Russell, and uh, Stefan Fulton in the amateurs. Uh, also, the accuracy. Uh, Villa doesn't always punch enough. Uh, He only threw 135 power punches in 10 rounds in his last fight, but he landed 59% of them. Um, Mm. And he's pretty dangerous to the body when he remembers to punch downstairs. As for Collado and what can we expect, I think we can expect a style that is conducive to letting Villa show off what he can do. Uh, Collado says people call him the Cuban Mexican because he comes forward. And that's pretty much what Villa wants. Uh, Collado is a veteran. He's been a pro for more than 11 years. He had a two-year gap from 2017 to 2019, but then he came back last year and fought four times in seven months, all wins. So he should be coming into this fight sharp. But he's a big underdog here. Uh, Not only is Collado's style potentially tailor-made for Villa, but his history suggests he isn't on this level. His two losses are against Omar Douglas, a good undefeated prospect Mm -hmm. at the time, but not quite an elite prospect, and Rod Salka. Yes, that Rod Salka. So, uh, yeah, Via is a pretty clear favorite here. Uh, Moving on, the co-main event sees 10 rounds or less of welterweight action as undefeated 34-year-old Ukrainian Taras Real Deal Shelistyuk. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I gave it the old college try. Uh, He brings in a record of 17-0 with 10 knockouts, and he takes on replacement opponent Luis Alberto Verón, who is 18-1-2 with nine knockouts. Kieran, what can you tell us about these two? Uh, So, Shelstyuk is from Ukraine. And uh, like a lot of folks from that part of the world, he turned pro late. Uh, as you mentioned, he's 34 um, after an extensive amateur career. His amateur record is reportedly a somewhat ridiculous 300 wins to 15 losses. Mm. Um, he won the 2011 World Championship and 2012 Olympic bronze at 152 pounds. Uh, and on that Olympic team, th- that incredible Ukrainian team, he was teammates with Alexander Vozdek, Alexander Usyk, and Vasily Lomachenko, all of whom are fairly decent. Um, uh, as a pro, he's got some pretty good team members. Um, Julian Chua, who works with Freddie Roach, is his lead trainer, and uh, Bobby Benton, who's the trainer of Regis Progre, works with him too. Uh, he's a natural counterpuncher uh, and a southpaw. He's been oddly inactive. He had no fights in 2018, just one in 2019. Um, I did just find out that he follows me on Twitter, so he's obviously a very huh? smart man. Um, <laughs> But it will be interesting to see if that inactivity is going to be an issue for him against Veron, who's been anything but inactive. Um, in fact, his most recent outing, Veron, was on January 17th uh, in Argentina when he won the vacant South American welterweight title with a second round knockout. Uh, indeed, since July 2017, whereas Shelstyuk has had just one fight, Veron has had 10. 
Um, but after winning the first six of those, he went 0-1-2 and last year uh, before scoring that win a week or so ago. Uh, he describes himself as a boxer and a mover, although he doesn't have much in the way of punching power. So that's what we've got going on there in the co-main event. Um, and we open up with a lightweight eight-rounder. The Joker, Jerry Perez, 12-0 with nine knockouts against Jura Volcano Hamazarian, who is 9-1-1 with six KOs, but could easily be 11-0. His blemishes came in a loss and a draw in 2018 against Thomas Matisse, who headlined Showbox on February 14th. Uh, ringside observers generally thought that both of those decisions could have gone to Hamazarian. Uh, Eric, what is the likelihood of the Joker hanging an undisputed L on Hamazarian's record? It's hard to say because this is a significant step up for Jerry Perez. He hasn't faced an opponent anywhere near as good as Hamazarian yet, uh, whereas Hamazarian has competed at approximately this level, as you said, with those two fights against Matisse that, yeah, he probably deserved to win them both. So is Perez better than Matisse, or at least as good as Matisse and equally fortunate with judges? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, his last opponent had 11 losses. Two fights before that, he beat a guy with 23 losses, and the opponent right before that also had 23 losses. Um, I'll give you one negative for both of these fighters. Hamazarian is going to have ring rust to deal with. Uh, the mm -hmm. second Matisse fight was 16 months ago, and he hasn't fought since. And Perez says he's broken both of his hands numerous times. So that's not a great chronic problem to be dealing with <laughs> as a boxer. Um, I like this matchup stylistically. They're both boxer-punchers. They can both move pretty well and have good skills, and they both have some pop in their mitts, too. Hamazarian is probably the more awkward of the two, uh, but I think we have a great chance here at both a very close fight and a very fun fight. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the Joker can do, because his record to this point just doesn't tell us much. Yeah. All right, it's time for us to make our picks for the main event, which, of course, is the only fight we pick on Showbox cards. After the Garcia Red Catch card, where we each picked up five points, our score for 2020 stands at 11 to 9 in favor of the home team. And, uh, Kieran, <laughs> I picked first last time, so you're up first this time. Who do you have in Via Colado and how? Uh, Via is certainly the, the class boxer here, um, and he should prove to be several levels above Collado. Um, uh, and even though he did show flashes of power in his last outing, and his manager insists that if it hadn't been for the 11-minute delay when the ring broke, he would have stopped, uh, stopped his guy, um, he was still forced to go the distance one more time. And the easy pick which I'm going with, is to suggest that he's going to have to do that again. Uh, that said, and I think you you touched on this, um, the fact that Collado does fancy himself as a come-forward fighter means that we're going to see the best Ruben Villa. He, he, does do, he does look extremely good against guys who bring the fight to him. Um, I, still, it's, I still don't think that he's going to be able to stop him. I still just think that's going to be a feature of Ruben Villa. He'll, he'll score some occasional stoppages. Um, but going out on a limb uh, and suggesting that he's going to score a KO, I think is asking a bit too much. I think Ruben Villa is going to look really good in this fight uh, with, and win a wide unanimous decision. Yeah, uh, that's the ultimate chalk pick. Uh, and I don't see any reason to get crazy and creative and contrarian. When Villa fights, you say Villa by unanimous decision. It's not that complicated. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think Collado may have some moments, and his pressure might make it a little rough in there for Via at times, but mostly he'll play into Via's hands. So, yeah, I'd say Via wins eight or nine rounds out of ten, something like that. 
Sounds about right. There is only one other major fight card taking place this coming week. Uh, there was supposed to be an ESPN card on Saturday with a main event I was very much looking forward to, Jose Ramirez versus Victor Postol. But Top Rank picked the wrong time to try to stage a boxing card in China. Uh, <laughs> due to the coronavirus situation, that card has been postponed. It'll probably move to the U.S. on a date to be determined hopefully sometime in February, sometime soon, so the fighters don't have to start a whole new training camp, but right. we shall see. Uh, the only good part of all this was that we got to hear Bob Arum refer to the coronavirus as a cockamamie virus, as he explained <laughs> that he was, wasn't going to risk anyone getting sick before Fury Wilder 2 because of some cockamamie virus. <laughs> cockamamie is one of those words you have to be at least 75 years old to pull off, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, What's a non-cockamamie virus? Right, yeah, I don't know. I, that's a good follow-up question for Bob. What viruses qualify as not not quite cockamamie? I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, due to the cockamamie virus, uh, we are left with only one other major card this week. And notice I said this week, not this weekend, because it's on Thursday in Miami, the city hosting the Super Bowl, a little warm-up for Chiefs 49ers. We have a card streaming on DAZN. In the main event, Demetrius and defends his middleweight strap against one Luke Keeler. And on the undercard, Tevin Farmer and Jojo Diaz clash for a 130-pound belt, while Murajan Akhmadaliev challenges Danny Roman for a pair of 122-pound straps. Uh, there's also another bout involving YouTubers, but we'll skip right over what is in apparent danger of becoming an actual trend and focus on the professional boxers involved. And Kieran, I know you're especially interested in the undercard and in one fight in particular. Yeah, well, first of all, Farmer Diaz is is a quality matchup. Uh, I should actually point out that, you know, the hashtag Farmer Diaz is a fight, not a reference to some Mexican cattle rancher, which is what <laughs> I think every time I say, oh, there goes old Farmer Diaz. Um, uh, it, it's it's really a, a quality matchup between two very, very good boxers. Uh, it's pretty rare for Jojo Diaz to be on paper, at least the puncher. Um, but mm -hmm. while both sport very similar records, Diaz is 30 and one, while Farmer is 34 and one, as in 30 four and one right. um diaz has 15 stoppage wins which i had to double check i was really surprised about that actually um uh, and farmer only six uh, both are boxes and movers rather than sluggers this is going to be one of those real connoisseurs delights i mm -hmm. think it's 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 i think we're going to see some really good high quality boxing uh the folks who really love boxing are going to love and folks who just love Rock'em Sock'em robots are going to wonder what the hell is going on. Um, but the one that I'm really, really interested in is, is Roman Akhmadaliev. I am really high on Akhmadaliev, um, who won bronze at the 2016 Olympics as a pro is 7-0 with six KOs. He is skilled. He's strong. He's powerful. I really do think he is the real deal. But against Roman, well, he's facing someone who's almost quietly, sort of almost under the radar, built up a pretty fearsome record against top quality opposition. Uh, Roman began his career 2-1-1 one, and, one, and then 8-2-1. and one. He's now on a 19-fight win streak. Um, and Akhmedaliev's unbeaten record is not going to hold any fear for him because since November 2016, uh, Roman has taken the zero from five of his seven opponents, uh, Marlon Olea, Adam Lopez, Son Kubo, Moises Flores, and most recently TJ Doheny in that fight of the year candidate last April. Um, and incidentally, the combined record of those last seven opponents in total for Danny Roman, 127, two and three. Um, mm. If Ahmed Daliev really is as good as I think he is, victory over Danny Roman will go a long way toward proving it. Hmm. All right. Uh, you know, I... 
been looking at this card all along. It was the Farmer Diaz fight that, that jumped out at me that I was looking forward to the most. But you, you kind of sold me on uh, maybe it's the Akhmedaliyev-Roman uh, fight that, uh, that that could steal the show. B- both undercard fights are tremendous, really. Yeah, uh, so. Andrade versus Keeler, however, not so much. Uh, that, that's basically a walkout bout uh, on this card. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Andrade styled just doesn't do it for me. He's an excellent fighter, but I, I rarely enjoy watching him. And Keeler is essentially a club fighter. I can't imagine him having any success at all against Andrade. Uh, but that's okay. They're putting the fight I don't care as much about on last, which jibes nicely with my sleep <laughs> schedule. Uh, although this whole card is going up against uh, the series finale of The Good Place, so I'm probably not watching it live anyway. Well, indeed. Fork. <laughs> Shirt. Shirt balls. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we uh, we close out with a few news items from the past week in boxing. Uh, we begin with trainer Manny Robles revealing to ESPN that he and Andy Ruiz Jr., whom he steered to 2019's upset of the year KO win over Anthony Joshua, but who then ate his way to an uninspired loss in the rematch, have parted ways. Uh, Robles told Steve Kim, quote, I seen it coming during camp. I saw it coming, he said, correcting himself grammatically. <laughs> and he was just doing whatever the hell he wanted to do. Uh, the dad, obviously, with him being the manager, he just had no control over his son. None of us had control of him, for that matter. I just saw it coming. It wasn't going to work because he wasn't listening. He's not listening to me. He's not listening to his dad. He's not listening to anybody, end quote. Um, Eric, I don't think anybody who saw Ruiz's performance in the rematch or indeed his post-fight confession that in the wake of his first fight with Joshua, he, quote, ate everything, unquote, <laughs> will find any of those words from Manny Robles remotely surprising or hard to believe. No, n- not at all. Uh, and you could say Ruiz needs a different trainer who can find a way to get through to him when clearly Robles can't, at least in right. terms of training and eating the right way. But you could also say Ruiz is like every other boxer who needs somebody to blame when he loses. You know, fire the trainer. It must be yep. his fault. Um, there have been some rumors, uh, some talk about Ruiz meeting with Teddy Atlas. And Oof. I have to say, yeah, that was my first response. At first, I was like, Ugh, really? And then I thought about some more. That might be right for him. Cause Ruiz doesn't need a strategist, really. Andy is a guy right. who knows how to box. He knows what he's doing in the ring. He needs a motivator. And for all his faults... Teddy is a motivator for the right fighters, the ones who choose to listen, whose methods are effective. uh, I can't rule out that that they will be with Ruiz. Uh, But then again, if Ruiz isn't listening, it'll be the most frustrating experience of Teddy's training career. (laughs) But the most entertaining for us. Right. As long as the cameras are rolling either way, I guess I'll be happy. Yeah. Um, All right. A few uh, quick news items to mention here. Uh, You may or may not need to comment on most of these. Um, First, we talked recently about Alejandra Jimenez's upset of French on Cruz Desern and Jimenez calling out Clarissa Shields afterward. Well, that fight had VADA testing and Jimenez tested positive for a banned substance we learned last week via giddy press release from (laughs) Cruz Desern's promoter, Golden Boy. Uh, Jimenez is disputing the results of the test, so we'll wait to see how that plays out. Next, uh, two new signings for top rank. Andrew Cancio, who was dropped by Golden Boy following his loss to Rene Alvarado last time out, has signed with Bob Arum's company. And controversial heavyweight Jarrell Big Baby Miller is also with top rank now. Uh, And staying with top rank, Arum has been making noises about the idea of their top star Terrence Crawford facing Conor McGregor in a two-bout series, one in the octagon, one in the boxing ring, with Aram insisting that Crawford's wrestling background means he could actually acquit himself well in MMA. Kieran, 
Aram isn't being even remotely serious here, is he? <laughs> no. Look, sometimes Bob Aram will just say stuff just to say stuff. And, and, and if it gets a reaction, and especially if his fighter likes what he's saying, he'll say it some more. Um, there's no harm in him saying it. It will get reported if it hasn't already by MMA media as well as boxing media. And maybe not every, all these MMA fans have necessarily heard of Terence Crawford. So maybe now they'll hear about this boxer who's supposedly good enough to not only beat Conor McGregor in the boxing ring, but also be in with a shot against him at MMA. And so maybe some more of them will check out his past fights and watch his next one. And also, Aram can say all of this because there is no way he's going to have to follow through on it. Um, absolutely no risk at this at all. If McGregor really wants to face a boxer again, he'll get his ass kicked by Mayweather again or by Manny Pacquiao for 11 bajillion dollars. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and that's it. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd say Crawford McGregor is the most cockamamie two fight series I've ever heard of. <laughs> How'd I do? Did I pull it off despite being under 75 years of age? <laughs> yeah, very good. Very Alavega of you. Um, <laughs> um, we conclude this week. What appears to be good news for a pair of Japanese boxers. Uh, Naoya Inoue, fresh off his fight of the year win over Nonito Donair, has his next opponent, and it is Filipino John Real Casimiro, whom we last saw splattering. Zolani Tete in the third round to win an alphabet belt in the bantamweight division. And that's a good fight, that. And it looks likely to take place April 25th in Las Vegas. And middleweight belt holder Ryoto Murata has emerged as the leading contender to be this year's Cinco de Mayo opponent for Canelo Alvarez. Uh, with the lineal middleweight champion, whom we most recently watched, Polak Sergei Kovalev, a light heavyweight, uh, reportedly willing to go to Tokyo in what would be a blockbuster event. Uh, Eric, Canelo really has mastered the art of making the biggest possible bang for the buck um if he were indeed to take his act on the road to japan it would certainly be great for his global brand is it also a fight you'd like to see yeah not especially <laughs> uh the style matchup is decent you know there there should be action but it would figure to be pretty one-sided uh of all the names considered so far for canelo for 2020 murata is the softest touch i think we can say pretty clearly but I'm not convinced this is going to be the fight. I think mm. there's a chance Canelo is taking a page from the Mayweather playbook here. You'll recall once or twice when Floyd wanted to face a B-level opponent, he would float names of some C-level opponents uh. like uh, <laughs> Devin Alexander and the infamous Kareem Mayfield rumor uh, so that when he picked the B-level guy, it seemed relatively appealing. So... What if Canelo was serious about Billy Joe Saunders and then Golden Boy saw the lukewarm reaction, sort of like, you know, Saunders, he's fine. He'll do, but we aren't excited about it. Uh -huh. So they decided to make it look like it's going to be Murata. And then when they come back to Saunders, people will be more happy about it. I don't know. Just one of my crazy little conspiracy theories. Um, but added to that, I mean, I mean, part of the fun of Cinco de Mayo is doing it in Vegas. I'm not sure right. if it's the same in Japan. So, yeah. <laughs> <Which> or not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I uh, color me skeptical about this one. What do you think? Are you less dubious about Canelo Murata happening, and are you any more excited for the fight than I would be? It feels like a very Canelo move to me, in that um, it would be such a huge event in Japan, and it would be different. Um, and like you said, he, you know, probably out of the guys he could be facing, it's probably the least risk. Uh, Murata has that terrific right hand, of course, uh, and he's tall, but not a whole heck of a lot else. I would actually, interestingly, feel more disappointed if he did end up with Billy Joe Saunders because Saunders, though a better fighter, is just often abominable to watch. Right. Um, and he just, it would just feel like less of an event somehow. A, a better fight 
a more difficult fight, a less interesting fight, and a less interesting event for me. Hmm. So I, I, I buy into the Murata rumors just because it feels like the kind of thing Canelo would do. Right. All right. Maybe, perhaps uh, we can negotiate a, a small side wager uh, as to uh, who, who Canelo ends up fighting. It's not going to be either of them, is it? No. <laughs> yeah, Kareem Mayfield is getting the call. Like, right, that's right, exactly. All right, that'll do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to look back at the Showbox card in Louisiana and the DAZN card in Miami and to look ahead to yet another Showtime offering uh, as podcast favorite Mr. Gary Russell Jr. defends his featherweight belt against King Tug, Tugstock Nyambayar. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>